Hi guys, here we are today with uh, Jason Grant, CEO at Integral. Jason, how are you? I'm doing fantastically well. How are you, my brother? Yeah, do you know what? It, it, I was I was just saying before, busy week with the family. Uh, my little my little bro's become a dad for the first time, so exciting there. And actually, we are also just launching. Um, we're, we're just launching Ray on Live, so we've. Yeah, it's it's mad how much interest that there's actually been in these live events. So, uh, yeah. Con- congratulations <laughs> to your brother. And, uh, yeah. you know, I remember I became a dad when I was 25. I got married at the age of 23. So, um, you know, man, that changes one's life totally. Wow. <laughs> you were young. Very totally. young. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what, so, were you, what were you doing at the time? Were you, you, you weren't starting companies then, were you? I Yeah, it's... I had started my company probably around that time. Well, it was in 2005. So if I roll back at the time, it was roughly around that time I got married. I was becoming a dad. I started a company. All these things were happening at the same time. So, yeah, it's it's. I, I always believed in this kind of lifestyle of of just doing lots of things at the same time, uh, never just doing like one thing. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, build, building a company is like it's stressful. I can't even imagine yeah. having a young family and actually build uh, a company. Yeah, and that's why I think then in there's some sort of potentially psychological thing that you know if you because the human mind tends to kind of make any given one thing stressful. Uh, we kind of tend to bitch and whine basically <laughs> uh, about life. So if you do three or four stressful things at the same time you'll just think that they're all stressful <laughs> anyway so um, then one of those becomes uh relatively speaking like easy <laughs> sure. yeah. and i mean and, and for yourself though i mean given what you're doing like it none of it looks easy to be a fair um and i i think am i correct in saying that you're you actually get to work with quite a lot of like younger companies as well and see the stresses that they're having right now. So, I work with 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 companies at any stage. So it could be like founders just kind of thinking of an idea that all of them think it's the most breakthrough, cutting edge, uh, never before thought of um, an idea that that they are going to be billionaires off the back of. Uh, so that's kind of one extreme. And the other extreme is a big corporation that's existed for 100 plus years. It's embedded in every nook and cranny of the world, physically and sort of psychologically. And they need to completely change their way of working, such as British Petroleum. Okay. What what, what, what do you do with BP? So for the last year, I spent a year working with the blockchain unit, actually looking at ways in which blockchain technology can be utilized and used and leveraged to put them into the right future position to use blockchain for the right reasons and enable them to actually become carbon neutral by the year 2050, which is where the company is um, intending to be it's like going from being a oil and gas company to being a clean energy company that's at least the purpose and intent yeah. i mean it, it, it's almost like they, they don't really have an option 
I guess. You exactly. Know, the, world, <laughs> exactly. The, world, the world is running out of natural resources. So whether they like it or not, if they want to survive, <laughs> they're going to have to. Actually, do you know what? Companies like BP get a lot of stick, but mm-hmm. I've seen like the last like five, 10 years, they've been like launching some like really cool initiatives um, for people that want to work in in the stem in the stem subjects so yeah it's yeah it, it, it's an interest it's an interesting one to see I, I i think that actually it's evident that the public are behind it and the fact that you know just the number of, i'm guessing you don't drive an electric car though yourself right i don't actually drive at all uh, really? i don't drive at all which is perhaps a weird thing and uh, like i i know this is going to sound like some sort of pretentious statement but one of the reasons why i don't drive is because i I never really like the fact that cars pollute the planet Uh, so i'm a huge cyclist for example and i go to lots of places by bike even if it's you know two three hours ride Um, wow so so i never really liked this idea that to many places we can get to by clean means either, either train or cycle whatever uh, but so many people choose to just jump into a car and you know pollute on the way, so that's one of the reasons why I don't drive. That's but it's not just the only sure. reason. But uh, was it, was that when you when you were like seventeen, eighteen, when you know your friends yeah. are learning to drive? Was that yeah. your reason for not actually learning? One of the other reasons is because I spent majority of my life living in London, city of London. So really kind of driving and parking in city of London is just a nightmare. Impossible. And yeah. uh, uh, so so for the most part, the fastest way to get to places is by train or bus or, you know, some sort of public transport. It's just not practical to drive to most places in and around London. Either you get stuck in traffic or... Um, or um, you know, it takes longer than I, I've done this before. So, for example, I live in Kingston Borough, and you know, worked in bank, and I've taken even train from Kingston to bank, and it takes like an hour and fifteen minutes by the time you sort of change and you know you get through the crowds and so on. Cycling from here to there is fifty-five minutes for me, uh, so it's actually faster and and it's just like much healthier. No, hundred percent. But it's yeah. not practical if you've if you've got like two three kids and you're take, doing the school run in the morning, yeah. right? You can't whack all of them on a bike. Um, like, what w- what are your thoughts on this like war? And it is a war on <laughs> on, on on people driving cars. Then, uh, well, I I think like I I kind of jokingly and and it was a joke to start off with, and now it's becoming less and less of a joke. Where I said I will drive when full autonomy becomes the norm. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so, so, so that's that's something that I'm definitely waiting for. And I think, from user experience design point of view, full autonomy, uh, if and when it comes, will will and should make quite a big uh, difference and impact on the world. From people perhaps not owning cars at all to people living away from uh train and tube stations because you would be able to sort of whistle a car like in the back in the day like we had tom and jerry uh cartoons where where jerry would whistle to a dog to come and help him so we'll be able to sort of like whistle to a car to come and pick us up even from a sort of suburb area and then drop us off or wherever it needs to drop us off and then it goes to serve another person uh in a clean way so so do do you think that cars are just going to become like horses right 
people still ride horses that they love they you know they love horse riding but in the same way we're not all like traveling around on horseback so i mean do, do you see cars or, or the way that we currently have uh we use vehicles as 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 dying out uh well it's just everything's just evolving and uh emerging you know into a different thing um you, you, basically the 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 future systems are more especially on the utility side of things um are less about having to outrightly own things and i want to be kind of careful how i answer this because yeah. i i'm a huge fan of owning stuff okay. but not a huge fan of owning absolutely everything so we we don't own like uh waterworks yeah like water is something we're paying for you know like a monthly uh bill and we get water supply in our home right uh so there's no need for us to own a water well or a company it's not practical so cars and transport similar with trains right you don't own the trains you just, so just pay a ticket and you get on and, and you go and in some places those things are free as well Right. So uh, so there is ways in which these things can become so sort of like a public good that you either just pay for when you're using it or it becomes free because when it's used by so many different people, it, it kind of just works out. Maybe it serves you advertising as you are traveling in it, which you have in trains, for example. Um, so so things like that are possible. And that's subject to you know, redesigning the business models and the way that uh, a system is supported um, and how the kind of profits might be shared and stuff like that. Yeah, I've got to be honest, I, I, I think it's a disaster. And and, and mm. I, I'd love to be wrong, but I think this like war on the motorists taking mm -hmm. away their vehicles mm -hmm. is going to possibly be the, the biggest contributing factor to the downfall mm -hmm. of the city of London. I think that it's impossible to run a business that requires some form of logistics, um, some form of like, um, uh, well, no, any business, right? Any business that uh, requires uh, vans, uh, cars in vehicles in any such form, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's purely going to collapse them. And you're not going to create less pollution. You will simply mm -hmm. move the pollution from London to outside yeah. of London. And they will, it will just become an excuse to increase the ULEZ zones. Mm -hmm. become, uh, uh, and the amazing thing about the ULEZ zones, it's not even taxing the rich. It's If yeah. you're rich and you can afford a Tesla, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. It's actually yeah. for the people that can't afford nice cars. So, you know, th this this war isn't, I don't see it as, an, as this war on the motorists, isn't an, a war on uh, on people driving their cars. Rather, it's a war on london on the city of london and it's a mm -hmm. war on our way of life and and our businesses yeah. above anything else because i actually the money the wealth is being transferred out of the west out of the cities like london and it's and it's dispersing elsewhere and no one seems to actually care yeah so i i i'd, I'd say um that london city has got, as far as I'm concerned, much bigger problems 
than uh than that and i agree like anything kind of like that's like imposing taxes on people and forcing certain behaviors rather than sort of just going with a natural change of behavior that people might be exhibiting uh is kind of borderline either abusive or just inappropriate so I agree with that. Uh, yeah well yeah yeah uh, but the thing is like in general britain and city of london have lost uh, its sort of brand appeal uh, overall and, and continue to lose it uh, through all sorts of like weird self-inflicted reasons as far as I'm con con yeah. concerned in analyzing from, you know, I, I can tell you that like about five, maybe seven years ago, there, there were so many startup incubators running in London that I, I couldn't, I couldn't, list them all in a spreadsheet no but a yeah. lot of them were just a lot of them were just ponzi schemes and scams yes okay so that wasn't good but at least they were there at least there was a bunch of people talking startups and and kind of like doing some sort of business plans and pitch decks and stuff today i barely know a single startup incubator in london oh no there are there are i i interview them there, there's some good ones as well but mm -hmm. let's be clear most of them the last five years all these government schemes like that run like grants, it is mm -hmm. purely just a way for politicians to funnel funnel money to their mm. friends. That is it. Like yeah. nothing, there's, there's no other reason for it. And and all that stuff has resulted in the downfall of British brand and London brand. Uh, you know, it takes it takes a while to ruin something good. You know, it's not like an overnight usually process. Uh, and and you know now now we have a situation where I feel that City of London and Britain need like a brand new sort of injection of it's done. There is there is there is no brand new injection. Like, <laughs> I, I, no, Jason, honestly, like I don't mean to sound like like the pessimist here. Yeah. Like because there's so much opportunity worldwide, but we've had people, mayors, like Sadiq Khan, rip this city to shreds. He's mm -hmm. possibly the most powerful politician in this country and definitely one of the most powerful politicians um, in the Western world. And he has completely, and Boris Johnson didn't do any better a job, right? But he has completely destroyed London. And the reality is, is that companies like Rayon, all we're thinking about, we're just planning our escape. Like, that's it because because yeah. we've, we've we've just we've just destroyed it we had the best city in the world and it was and you can argue with me on this but you know the conservative government essentially like defunded the police they got rid of the police and when you take the police out of any area and crime goes through the roof all these companies including start sorry, especially startups going why why would i have confidence to build my company in this city that is clearly on a downward trajectory. Yeah, I think it's 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 tricky to to say because I've lived in City of London now for twenty not City of London but London in, sure. in general. Yeah. Um, I've I've lived for now almost thirty years, and I remember when I first came here, there were times. I remember many many times when I was going through areas like. Clapham Common, Clapham Junction, Brixton, Stockwell, Hackney, uh, even Camden, uh, lots of central London locations. I was shitting bricks going through those areas, 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I remember it being extremely, extremely tough. Peckham. Okay. Yeah. New Cross. Uh, any kind of like most East London, that area where now is like Millennial Dome, all the area where it's like Docklands and so on. Yeah. Those are like no go zones. Yeah. Um, so I remember London from 30 years ago, it being an absolute derelict city that was gangster town. Okay. Now people tell yeah. me London is 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 crazy, uh, you know, insecure or whatever. And I just see everywhere I look. The other day I was on the tube and the guy was hugging his girlfriend with like a fifteen thousand pound Rolex on his wrist. Uh, in the and, tube. and it'll be gone. Oh, so okay. So I I live I lived in Primrose Hill during the pandemic, <laughs> and not 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 in a nice place in Primrose Hill. But I lived in Primrose Hill during the pandemic, and I was like super lucky to mm. live there. We had daily occurrences because mm -hmm. everyone around there yeah. seemed to have a rolex yeah they were getting robbed they were all getting robbed. Well, the police used to come around and warn yeah. us i'm like you're warning the wrong person here yeah but, uh, you know but they were like just keep your keep your rolexes like safe, yeah and 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 the thing is the point is that overall london 30 years on is a much much safer city than it was 30 years ago now the, the robberies and all this kind of drive-by shootings that are happening are warning signs of another kind of problem that, that's arising uh, and that needs to be dealt with uh, systematically and systemically. Uh, and, and that is where we need to have hunger to innovate. We, we're now living at a time where major, major systems need to change. So when we're talking about like self-driving autonomous vehicles or, uh, you know, designing new type of education where pupils and students don't get like enforced to learn a bunch of subjects that they never want to kind of utilize in the future, but they might have some sort of like more sort of customized education that they that suits them. That's a lot more practical, skills oriented, and so on. These are like major changes to systems uh, that require very different kind of innovation, rather than saying, "Oh, I was selling you coffee mugs, and now I'm selling you just slightly different looking coffee mugs, but they're still sure, a coffee sure, mug." Sure. You know, it's it's a, we're talking about radical innovation as opposed to sure, just sort of like perception I, innovation. I, I I would say though, if you're like a if you're like a young kid living in South London, mm -hmm. you're not you're not seeing London be any safer than it was thirty years ago, or fifteen years ago, or five years ago. It, it, it it's it's. I just don't see. I mean, look, listen, I haven't got the data, so I can't. I've got to be careful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I used to, I used to study in New Cross. You know, I was drive, I was taking a bus from Stockwell, where I lived for fifteen years. You know, uh, where where an innocent guy got shot because he looked like somebody else, right? And then nobody ever got found guilty you, for that. Are you, wait, uh, are you talking about? Can I ask, uh, are you talking about John Charles Domenizes? Exactly. Uh, so. Um, you know, I remember that day as yeah, well so when that I. happened. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, those were the dangerous times that I remember. And, you know, going sometimes through Peckham on the way to New Cross on the bus and sometimes having to duck down because there was some sort of like gunfight happening there or, you know, someone was wielding a knife or something. Um, but now those areas like Brixton, Stockwell, even Peckham, New Cross, they're all gentrified. 
And, you know, there are places where I can't really afford and, and, and go to a restaurant and have a lunch because it's like too expensive, right? And too fancy. Uh, places that I remember where no-go zones or places where I would feel really, really uncomfortable going to. Uh, and so now, is there still danger around there? Is there still pockets where you can get, you know, shanked or whatever? Absolutely, right? But are they everywhere? No. <laughs> uh, and so I think I'm hoping that over time, London becomes actually completely safe city. But I'm not sure that there is a single big city in the world that's completely safe. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that's even possible to do. People talk about like Dubai and Middle East, where the laws, you know, for, for doing something, you know, like stealing, it might cut your hand off. Right. That's where it's like completely safe. But those are actually a lot more, uh, you know, um, regimes that in the West would be described as oppressive. Right. You just have to do things by the, the, the rules. You know, there's no kind of like bending the rules. So uh, where, where, where's the balance then? Like, what, what do you see the balance being? Uh, I think the balance is in is in designing redesigning humanity in a way that everybody all humans see the benefits of living in peace and harmony and holism so to speak where you can actually be open with people in public like the area where i live in kingston in surrey you know i'm walking down taking my daughter to school and, you know, I go past someone that I've never seen before and we say hello to each other and say, how are you? You know, and so on. I might pet their dog and stuff, you know, and there's no fear that I'm going to get shanked. So that's possible, right? Um, and, you know, it's like I've got 11-year-old daughter. I can let her go to school, which is 20-minute walk on her own if I choose to. Uh, so that's, there's a there's a um, consultant in US um, uh who, who talks about popsicle index, you know, and, and popsicle index is, is about how likely as a parent you are to let your child go and buy a popsicle or candy, you know, in America, they call it popsicles. How likely are you to let your child go to the shop and buy popsicle and come back and you not fearing that they're going to get like kidnapped, killed, raped or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, it used to be like when I was growing up, it used to be a thing that you were just comfortable doing that. And that over time, that became less and less, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. likely. So the popsicle index has dropped a lot. Yeah. But here where I'm living, the popsicle index is very high. It's like, okay, go to school. That's fine. Just let me text me when you're there. So I know you're there. Right. That's that. Did you like, as, as a kid, like we would just go out in the morning at like eight o'clock. And I'm talking about when I was like eight years old, seven, eight years old, like it wouldn't happen now. You would just go out on your bike, and this is in London still, right? In mm. North London, like you would just come back at like six, seven o'clock, no, whatever, before it got dark. Mm. You would just come back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Do, do Do you see it ever getting to that point again, or not? Or not really? I I see things getting to that point. Yes. Okay. Uh, and and what's going to take to to achieve that is that global kind of awakening. Right. Oh, and, sorry. But I, I mean, in London. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. okay. Every, everywhere. Eventually, everywhere. 
but let's just say in London, you know, there's lots of pockets of people. Like I've met people, I've I've met people, this is real stories. I've warmed up for Tony Robbins' uh, uh, talks, right? And so I'm doing this like warm-up talk just about my life for Tony Robbins' um, you know, event tomorrow or whatever. And I'm speaking in behind the stage. I'm speaking to a bunch of people who are helping organize these things. And I'm speaking to a 22, 23-year-old girl. And I say, where do you live? And she says, in Wembley. And I said... Um, you know, when, when, uh, how, how often do you go out like, you know, Leicester square and stuff like that? She goes, um, I've never been to Leicester square. I said, what do you mean? You've never been to Leicester square. She goes, I've, I've never traveled that far. Like you're 23 years old. You haven't been to Leicester square. She's like, no. <laughs> and she hasn't been to half of the areas in London. Right. So we're talking about people, you know, traveling, you know, there's I got a whole bunch of friends who are like in Davos at the moment, you know, for World Economic Forum or you know, they travel to these blockchain conferences, Singapore, this, that and the other. Right. Just on the whim like that. This girl has not been from Wembley to Leicester Square. For whatever reason. And I'm thinking, man, you know, and I know a lot of people in London who have not been from Stockwell to Wembley or from Stockwell to Kingston or, uh, you know, Brixton to Hackney and places like that. So this kind of still, you know, divides like that northwest, east, south in London. So um, when that disappears, then you're going to see a lot more kind of um, harmony in the city. Sure. Look, I mean, <laughs> your your views are very... I like they're I, nicely like they're they're idealistic doesn't mean they're wrong right but I, I Over, just, overall the world is tending towards being a better place I, I'm a refugee from Bo- I'm a refugee from Bosnia yeah, yeah. so I've lived through yeah. three years of war so I know exactly what war is and I know exactly what it is to sleep on the floor not wanting to yeah but overall my life has been getting better, although some things have been getting worse. Like I'm paying higher taxes. I'm paying more for products and services, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the things that that could be straightforward are not straightforward, right? Uh, like a lot of services could be a lot more optimal, uh, like booking an appointment online with the GP. I just couldn't do the other day, right? It just sent me through four different systems that I had to register for, and then it lost my journey completely. I was thinking, what is this, right? It should have been yeah. relatively straightforward. Um, a lot of things are imposed onto us, like all sorts of NHS IDs and uh, vaccination that we don't necessarily want or need, uh, all sorts of things are imposed that, that are not necessary at all. In fact, they're not just that they're not necessary. They're they're being put into the system to make it actually worse, rather than if it wasn't there at all, it would be better. <laughs> yeah. So 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 those that's there's a huge amount of waste of resources. Yeah, huge amount of waste of resources, especially on wars. Right, like one bomb costs millions of pounds to to make and explode right and for those one one bombs millions you could probably make seven solid startups that would actually be helping people right 
So, so the so-called defense industry is the biggest, biggest waste of resource uh, humans have ever oh, made. No, see, oh, I've got to be honest. Again, so it's interesting because I've never picked this up on like your on on our past discussions. Uh-huh. So <laughs> we're quite we're actually quite different in in many aspects. Like, look, I'm very Lovely. optimistic. I'm very optimistic in terms of the fact that. I always think like how like my parents grew up with no carpet mm-hmm. in the house. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad had no indoor plumbing, right? Mm-hmm. They had like a shed that was a garden, right? Uh, sorry, a shed that was in the garden that was like a toilet. And this mm-hmm. isn't like in some faraway land. This is in Stepney Green, right? Mm-hmm. In the in the fifth in the sixties. So like I, I get it. Like like so many things have have definitely improved, but in terms of why they've improved, I would say actually. Yes, there's been a cultural shift globally after mm-hmm. World War II. It was very much like never again on any of mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think that the best way, what's the, it's the Latin saying? Um, uh, uh, if you want peace, prepare for war. Mm-hmm. And And actually, when you look at the defense spending that's going on in Russia, right at the Mm -hmm. moment how as a percentage of gdp there's a lot of arguments that would suggest actually if you want peace prepare for war and we should be spending more money on defense that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. building bigger and better bombs right i I don't think at some point it's irrelevant building any bigger bombs because you drop any one of them they're going to blow up the whole damn planet um Mm -hmm. but surely defense as an industry cybersecurity, privacy right surely that should be one of the areas where we should be investing in more and the uk particularly has the opportunity to create many many more jobs if it just invests efficiently in in the future of, of defense yeah so so cybersecurity to me and i'm pretty sure this like if you dig deep enough you will find this out cybersecurity is not defense Cybersecurity is just good software engineering and design. Yeah, that's how sh- software should be built. Yeah, most of the time when you're building software, you don't want everyone just coming in willy nilly and changing anyone's data willy nilly and then just going. That's not how software should work. Okay, and I studied software engineering. So, cybersecurity is part of good software engineering, it's engineering practice. Okay, and design. Okay, and and information architecture. That's that. So the fact that that's got co-opted somehow into defense, I don't know when and when that happened, but I think it's just because, you know, the defense industry has started seeing, you know, this thing of like dropping bombs on people, it's, it's unsustainable, as you said earlier on. And actually, you know, it's not cool. Like no one's interested. Like you and I are not interested in being conscripted to go and fight in a war. I'd last about five seconds. You you are not ready for war, nor am I. Okay. I go and run up the stairs in my local train station every day to prepare myself for war because I've been through one. Okay. You are not how doing you, that. How, how old were you, by the way? I was 14 when I came refugee, but it was eleven I was eleven years old when the war started. And so I know I know what sure. it is to be prepared for war. So I sure. prepare all the time. Yeah, for it. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I prefer peace. So bombs are unsustainable, f- physically, uh, uh, um, uh, financially, 
practically, morally, logistically. Morally. Yeah? You, you kill people. Yeah. You know how long it takes to rebuild one soldier. Yeah. One, as soon as a soldier gets injured, okay, they can't fight anymore. It takes another probably like 50 years to rebuild one soldier. So, right? what, what, so what, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean rebuild one soldier? Because, because, because two people now have to meet and make a child that is a, a male child, bring it up to the age of 18, yeah, yeah. etc. Et then they got to get it trained for about a few years, okay. right? And then they got to get battle hardened for a few years somewhere. Sure. Then they're actual soldier, okay? Sure. So you're talking like 25 years plus the run-up time to make a human, okay? Sure. Now, the number of humans that have died in Ukraine and in and Russia, you know, in, in already in way over hundreds of thousands, Okay, those are not going to get rebuilt for another 30, 40 years. That's why you have this kind of world wars happen every 50 years. They don't happen every five years. Yeah. Most of the wars, apart from maybe Syrian war and all these kind of things, you know, they run for about two, three, four years. And that's end. Why? Because it's unsustainable. There's not you run out of ammo, you run out of human resource, you run out of ability to wage war. Yeah. It's the most expensive startup ever. Okay. So that's why the defense industry is really moving into this cyber security, right? Because everyone's using software and they're like, now this is the defense because we don't want people to come in. It's like, no, 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 that's just software engineering and design that should be done properly from the start. And we were being taught that 30 years ago in software engineering. You start from security, then you go on. So, I mean, what, what okay, so where do you separate then in terms of like defense from cybersecurity? Like there, there, there has to be an element, and I, I just want to push back on. I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, mm-hmm. and I think from a moral perspective, I think we're probably completely in line. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there are bad people in the world, and there's definitely psychopaths like Putin that want no. to take over. I never would have called Putin a psychopath five years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he had this in him to do it. Mm-hmm. Um. But there are clearly people that want to take over the world by any means necessary. And if that means like bombing innocent civilians and killing children, they'll do it. And, you know, as as someone who has lived through it, mm-hmm. you've seen it firsthand. What should other nations be doing in terms of defense then in order to, to protect, protect themselves? Because you're always going to have you're always going to have a Putin. So. My view on all of this is to build resilient peaceful systems and for the most part humans have not really been doing that yeah systems that can be sustainably peaceful most countries are not sustainably peaceful in a british uh, em- economy and a lot of the western economies have actually grown because of the so-called defense industry because they've been starting wars elsewhere and supplying those wars. So the growth, like we studied when I was doing GCSEs here in UK, that American economy went like this during the Second World War because America was never bombed. Most of Europe was bombed. Russia, you know, lost a lot of people, etc. There's like war was happening everywhere but American well, soil. No, no, no. And America was supplying weapons to the rest of the world. So American economy went like this. The rest of the economies went down. 
Well, you know? the, the, but the, hold on, the, the, in terms of that though, so like I, I think in terms of like what you're referring to is like the Len Lease Act, right? But when you look at actually America's spending on defense um, mm-hmm. in in the run up to the war as a percentage of GDP, it hadn't actually had any more of it. It hadn't increased. It was really only after. Uh, was it the day in infamy? It was December 6th, 1941. It was Pearl Harbor, right? It was really only after Pearl Harbor that, you know, that as a percentage of GDP, America started investing a lot more in defense spending. Um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but I think it was probably around like four, four and a half percent. So, but in terms of the money, yes, that, you know, they had stayed out of the war for as long as possible. They had, uh, benefited financially, right, from the Lend-Lease Act, which was essentially uh, creating debt towards, was it United Kingdom, China, even France, and you know it, it was their opportunity for to make the dollar the number one currency in the world, yeah. right? Which yeah. they can. Yeah. But so that's actually had, one of the biggest wars that's happening, the financial war. But yeah, but hold on, had they not done that, had America not done that. Like World War Two would have gone on and on and on. It wouldn't. I mean, I, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm I'm happy to be wrong. Not happy. To, well, I I could very well be wrong. But in terms of had had America not invested more in defense, um, then you know, and and jumped in the way they did, like, don't know. Like, where where would we all be right now? So so actually, one of the biggest reasons why World War Two had stopped and why Germany failed is because Hitler was starting so many more and more grandiose projects that were completely unsustainable from building this bomb that was able to kind of shoot from Germany all the way up to like wherever on the planet, right? Right. He had basically spent himself on these projects. Um, and, And this is what happens, you know, when when people have this psychopathic mind of like, I am the one who knows everything and everyone else who doesn't agree with me should be bombed to oblivion. Uh, they basically end up spending themselves out on the, on their crazy ideas. But is, isn't that what Sadiq Khan's done with London? Uh, Sadiq Khan, I think, is just a generally kind of a person who had had no real kind of idea and vision for anything so it's just kind of useless person unfortunately yeah for all of us for him he feels like his success and you know i was thinking you know son of a bus driver at least we might get like really cheap bus transport and the bus transport in london has never been more expensive and, and kind of or dangerous. Like, do, do you want to get a bus? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to get a bus at eleven o'clock at night in London? It's not not reliable. So so you know, Sadiq Khan is just a useless person, I would say, in general, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, that's that's just sort of, I don't know. It's it, it's just really unfortunate thing about London. London needs to have a mayor who is a kind of uh, a, a persona that can represent London. I think mayor needs to be a person who is like a, um, a person who really represents the city and stands for it and can be seen as that kind of representative. I have rarely ever seen Sadiq Khan say something hype about London, you know, that's been on the news apart from we're introducing more taxes on this and that. And it's like, God. He's just, look, yeah. with, with, with Sadiq Khan, um, I could not agree with you more. <laughs> I think you said it perfectly. He is a useless 
human being. His attack on his attack on the drivers is part of his makeup where he does feel that he knows best in the same way that any dictator would. And it is going to result in businesses, and I, I want to bring this full circle, it's going to result in businesses just leaving the capital. And what will happen is that with the cuts in, and by the way, Boris Johnson is no more innocent with this, right? When he was met, <laughs> he was guilty of this as well. But it was cycling, though. It was cycling a lot. Sure, but there, there's listen. You can do the you can do the right thing, right, for the individual, but the wrong thing on scale, right? So, mm -hmm. so what I mean by that is that actually, ideally, more people would be cycling in London. Ideally, in a, in a magical world, but mm -hmm. it's not practical. And it's not realistic, especially for businesses. And the outcome of it is that actually, when you try and scale certain things within business, you find out how good your product market fit is. You find out how good your uh, service is. And what they are now, or sorry, what they are about to find out is that businesses will say, right, you've got rid of the police. London is now a hellhole. There's kids running around killing each other on a daily basis almost. Why would we want to invest? Why would we want to stay here? And, and I agree with you. You need someone that actually has a clear and specific vision for London. But it can't it can't just be all about the detail, right? Let's get rid of cars and let's like rebuild the roads. Let's, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. You need someone that has a vision. They know how to communicate it. And they know how to like reinforce that vision. Um yeah, especially yeah. London. The, the, yeah. So one, I was say the mayor of London, the best mayor of London is probably going to be someone that probably doesn't actually want the job, and it's not going to be um, someone that is a career politician. Um, yeah, I think basically we're we're entering a time where we need uh, what's what what can be described as meta systemic vision for the world, uh, and what that means is that there would be. Uh, an optimal system from first principles, okay, from maths and yeah. engineering yeah. And, and all these kind of things, yeah. where it's like the cheapest and most optimal way to get some water into your house, the cheapest, most optimal way to get some energy, like electricity into sure. your house or wherever, the cheapest, most optimal way to get from A to B through different means, right? So maybe someone wants to cycle, maybe someone wants to get in some sort of electric scooter thing, maybe someone wants to jump in some sort of a car, whether it's self-driving or, or uh, you know, manually driving and so on. Uh, but, but all those things need to be as optimal as mathematically possible, okay? So that meta system should be first principles, optimal system that just enables everyday running of, uh, the, the the society sure okay and then the instance inside that meta system needs to be how people want it to be and a sort of kind of ever-changing uh trends-based thing so maybe you know i don't know this these few years we're into some sort of celebrations and carnivals and so on and then after you know i don't know five years of that we get so sort of bored of that so then we're into like I don't know, let's all just explore the nature and spend time in nature of our kind of distributed parties and sure. parks and stuff. And then after we get bored of that, we'll change to something else and whatever, right? Because humans always want to kind of change things and get bored of stuff, right? So 
uh, that needs to be then enabled through some sort of democratic thing. But wrapped around that is the meta system that's as optimal as possible from energetic and, and financial perspective. Maybe and the, run, the maybe reason run for mayor. Well, the thing is, I, I've just I've just recently agreed to uh, work with something called Institute of Applied Meta Theory, okay. uh, and what that's looking into is becoming a think tank for applying what's called integral theory, which is a theory meta theory of everything that takes into account these kind of things that we've been discussing, which is I, we, it, and its. Uh, aspects of reality and then designing for them in what i describe as integral design right so i'm not just designing for myself i'm designing for us which is intersubjective realm i'm designing objects and i'm designing systems and all those four things need to be in harmony together for the whole thing to work and that's what a, a meta system is so i've just literally started working with uh, Institute of Applied Meta Theory to start bringing that kind of thinking into reality by applying it to businesses, cities, governments. Uh, what, all is there something Rayon could do to help you with that? Like we obviously have like, access to a lot of the universities. Uh, yeah, so it, it, this will be. Uh, this is now developing a, an approach as to how to bring that into reality. So reach out to universities, businesses, corporations, governments, and so on to to bring in this kind of thinking, as opposed to you know very sort of situational, uh, ad hoc, and not really kind of strategic changes that usually can lead to like bigger problems down the road than by doing nothing. Honestly, if we can help you with something, like just just throw it out there, you know. Like, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that, that there are a lot of good ideas, but more than that, I think there's a lot of good people that know how to execute on these on these good ideas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, look, we're going to leave it there, Jason. But like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's honestly been been great speaking with you. I'm pleased that we could actually at least agree on the fact that Sadiq Khan is useless. <laughs> So I, I, I was I was not expecting to be speaking so much about politics and those kind of things, but you know I, I've got I'm super opinionated on this, yes. and uh, you know it's um, it, unfortunately for me it's from practical you know experience in life. You know a lot of people talk about war and peace and stuff, and it's like they've not really experienced either of those properly. Right. Uh, so it's like okay. We're gonna do. I'm actually. We're gonna do another podcast, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I want to dive more into your uh, thoughts on war and peace, right? So yeah, Dostoevsky yeah. style. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, it's like you know, there, there's a book called Art of War, right? Yeah, of course, Sanzu. That, yeah. Sanzu, right? Yeah. Well, I'm writing a book called Art of Peace. Right. So there you go. Okay. No, well, listen. Let, let's let, let let's film. Let's do another podcast. Uh, it'll be great to have uh, have you back. Um, and I, I've got to say that I, I think that actually, um, it's impossible or irresponsible for anyone to be like diving into the level of technologies and building things that like you and I are building right now without having like these philosophical discussions. Yeah, and absolutely. The morality behind it. So yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, one way to describe design. This is actually a good thing to leave it with. Design is applied philosophy. That's it. Huh? We will leave it there. But Jason, <laughs> have you? I really appreciate it. And we Thank will you, have to do this again. Thank you so right. much. Cheers. Appreciate Bye -bye. it.